Zach Silk here, president of Civic Ventures, and I'm here on our bonus episode to talk about the next recession. And I'm going to be talking to Connie Raza. She is the chief of campaigns and policy for the Center for Popular Democracy. And she has written one of the most interesting memos on the coming recession and what progressives should do to prepare. It's actually called Break Glass in Case of Emergency, a strategy memo for winning a robust and just recovery from the next recession. And it's an incredible piece of writing and really interesting. And she is one of the most interesting people we've had a chance to talk to on the pod. So let's go to it. And I thought I would ask right out of the gate, is a recession coming? So I'm not a prognosticator. Um, I think <laughs> um, there are a lot of economists who say that there are a lot of tensions in the economy that could lead to a recession, but none of them are willing to put a timeline on it and none of them feel like it's tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so we well, have time to prepare. Yeah, that's that's right. It, it reminds me that the last time that we had a recession, which of course it was so big, we called it the great one, the great mm -hmm. recession. We were pretty caught off guard. Would you agree with that, our team? Yeah, I would. I would absolutely. And we sort of lost the narrative and then we lost the solutions, right? Yeah. You know, I honestly, the thing that I loved most about what you wrote was about the narrative. Um, I think sometimes in policy circles, we obsess about policy, which is not a surprise, mm -hmm. um, but that policy is really an extension of the stories we tell ourselves. And yeah. we lost that fight before it began because we had told ourselves these terrible stories about what was leading up to that recession and thus what the solution should be. And you articulated that so extraordinarily well in what you wrote. Can you recap that a little bit for me? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I'd say like this draws on the work of Robert Schiller, um, who's been focusing on something he calls narrative economics and on the work of Anat Shankar Osario and Ian Haney Lopez and Demos on their race class narrative work. Um, but th the narrative that we really had coming out of or coming into the Great Recession was really around individual responsibility or irresponsibility. And um, rather than really looking at the role that um, financial deregulation played, the role that predatory uh, practices in the financial sector really targeting certain communities for inappropriate, you know, explosive products um, played, uh, the narrative really focused on what individuals did, whether it was greedy um, homeowners who wanted to you know, get more home than they could really afford, right? That was one narrative. The other was these you know, like wunderkind kind of folks on Wall Street who were coming up with these exotic um, uh, structures for um, making money off of these collateralized debt obligations and so forth, all the exotic things. <laughs> but um, but we didn't point at the systemic problems and we didn't point at the ways that folks were feeling it in their communities. And so it was their fault in their communities and our problem in the financial sector. And that's how we responded. So I do think that there was a great effort made around the Recovery Act um, but it was, you know, for less than even the economists at the time were saying we needed in in order to keep communities whole. But meanwhile, like at the point that the financial sector was doing better, 
we called it the end of the Great Recession, and communities who had been feeling the pain of foreclosures before the recession was called and feeling it still after um, were left out in the cold. Yeah, one of the things that you pointed out um, was that this was really the culmination of this trickle-down ideology, because the trickle-down story has us all as very atomized, right? It's our individual decisions that get us into trouble, and it's not about the systems that are at play. And this is obviously very convenient because it lets the powerful and those who run those systems off the hook. Um, and I, I remember having a conversation with somebody who's in a position of power. And let's be really clear, this narrative's, this wasn't a Republican thing, right? This was, uh, this was also a Democratic thing. The decision makers that were in the Obama White House also felt like these people made their own bed and they are going to lie in it. <laughs> you That's know? right. Yeah. And, and it ends up being extraordinarily racialized, too, totally. because it was communities of color, black and Latino communities in particular, that were being targeted for these explosive products that were then like put together and cut up so that, you know, more money could be made off of them, um, who were getting blamed for like not reading the fine print um, when products were being misrepresented to them. Yeah, totally. And it, it you know, I think it's um, also when we have these kind of crises, one of the things that makes America great is we're supposed to pull together and help one another. And it doesn't really matter if you built your house in a floodplain or you happen to find yourself on a shore in a hurricane, we're going to be there for you. And that is not the approach that they took during this Great Recession. And it happened to be, of course, that that fundamentally benefited those in power. I mean, conveniently. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it, you know, we came out of the Great Recession with greater income and wealth inequality than we went into, especially like along racial lines. But we could make different decisions, right? In the face of a, a recession, we could make decisions that close the wealth gap and close the income gap rather than exacerbate the problem. Yeah, that's a great pivot to so we we clearly learned a lesson last time that we made a variety of mistakes. I mean, if you are going to have a great recession, and no one wants one of those, but if you're going to come out of it, everybody should be better off afterwards. And that actually did not happen. We have greater income inequality, greater wealth inequality, and those who are most vulnerable are more vulnerable today. And uh, that suggests that we did something fundamentally wrong last time, which a lot of your paper focuses on what we should do right next time. So could you talk a little more about what that is? What do you, what do you suggest? Um, I suppose one of those things is to start with a better story. Yeah, I think that we really need to be um, focusing even now, right? And well, focusing now on the ways in which we are creating an economy that is for the wealthy and powerful to continue to get more wealthy and more powerful and keep those of us who don't have that wealth and don't have that political power right now out. And we need to talk about how we see the um, those systems showing up in people's lives in, in terms of precarious working conditions um, and so forth. So that's one piece, is the need to really take control of the narrative starting now. But you know, another thing that I think is so important is that a recession 
really is this moment where across the economy, people are feeling the crisis. But we already, like so many communities, already are in crisis and are organizing around many of the policy solutions that could um, be reformulated in order to meet the acute crisis of an economic um, recession and to really leverage the kind of attention that's paid to that crisis in that moment in order to be able to build the economy that we want. Yeah, I think um, w w I'm going to hit on, there, there were a few things you said about um, in the paper about what kind of uh, pieces of the story, and I thought they were really, really powerful because I think it's something for everybody that's listening to this is to remember that one of the ways that we tell a di different and better story is to make sure that we center that inequalities have been created and perpetrated by decisions and systems and policymakers. Yeah. That these right. this did not happen to us like the weather, right? That these are <laughs> these are choices that people made, and we can make different choices. And that, that it's not about just about income, of course, that, that we have to be looking at wealth. Um, yeah. And I thought that was that is so much of the kind of story we need to be having. And then, of course, uh, that inequality in the United States is undergirded by race. And you 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 want I think you did really well of saying that these are the things that need to be fundamental to our next story. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. The. Um... I mean, what we've seen <laughs> in the last several years is just how um, powerful a uh, narrative of um, of race privilege can be, right? And and racial threats. And I think that the the thing that's true about sort of that kind of strategic racism is that it's really deployed not just to um, harm folks who aren't white but it actually really imposes severe limitations on non-wealthy white folks too. And so, you know, what it does is it substitutes economic well-being for a sense of access to status that, um, that, that powerful folks are trading on in order to, um, divide the economic shared interest. And I, I think it's important for us not to sort of say just self-interest in general, because I do think that there are material gains to that kind of um, white privilege, right? But it is strategic also, and it, it, it comes at a cost. Um, and so I think that it is so important for us to really unpack the ways that it's undergirded by race, that inequality is undergirded by race. Um, and then, as you said, I think the core of what we're able to do is that we understand that we're creating these inequalities and that we can make different decisions that undo these inequalities um, over time. And that's the real importance, right? Like a recession provides the opportunity to recover into a more equitable economy than we came out of. And then as you said, like this, the wealth problem is huge because like, I think sometimes when people think of wealth, they think of people who are simply like living off of investments, right? Their money is making money, but wealth is also 
what um, one can rely on just to handle a medical emergency without that crisis turning into a long-term condition of lack, right? It's what allows us to pay for elder care or child care in a society that doesn't provide it, which it should. Um, you know, it's what makes it, gives us a chance to give our kids a leg up. It, it's what gives us a sense of security um, and means that we're not just taking money in to pay it out for lights and a house and our food. Um, and so really making sure that we are thinking about how we're providing what wealth provides so that everybody can be secure in those ways. Yeah. So let's dig into it a little bit. I mean, you, you, I think point out that when we enter the next recession, no matter how intense it is, it's going to be an opportunity. It'll feel like a crisis and it's going to no doubt expose a lot of the weaknesses that are already present in the economy and it's going to make vulnerable people much more vulnerable. But we have an opportunity in it to do things differently. And you list a variety of policies that um, can help both address long-term structural problems as well as near-term pain points that people have in a recession. Uh, can we, let's talk a little bit about what those policies are and some of the things that you, you identified and you thought were ripe for us to, to go at. Great. I mean, I think that one of the main things that I really wanted to convey in my paper is that these policies are things that people are already organizing around and, and building. And so we actually have some of the infrastructure we need in place. Um, so childcare for all is one, right? Like in order for us to be able to put people to work quickly, particularly in the most impacted communities, we have to make sure that um, they are able to have care for their children and that those who are working in childcare are making enough, right, that they can thrive as well. Um, you know, there are some rules of the game that uh, are exacerbating the threat of a recession. So the sort of lack of regulation on corporations, um, our tax structure um, that could be addressed and could actually help not just um, in the short term generate revenue, for instance, in the case of the tax structure, but actually in the long term help rein in the inequality that we're seeing, right? Um, there's, uh, you know, obviously work around the Green New Deal and other kinds of both climate uh, mitigation, um, uh, green infrastructure and other infrastructure work that folks are, you know, campaigning hard around. Those are places where we could invest during a recession, create both jobs and the infrastructure that we need in order to be able to come out of the recession ready to thrive as a community of communities, right? Our country. Um, you know, one that we often... <laughs> don't think of as a long-term goal, but we do think of during moments of crisis is this idea of a full employment economy. There's no reason that as a, a nation where everybody has the opportunity to thrive and a nation with such abundance that we really all could be thriving right now, 
that we don't commit to a full employment economy. And that's both like monetary policy from the Federal Reserve, but also our fiscal policy and the kinds of investments that we're making um, as a country together. Um, you know, those are some of the things. Yeah, I thought those were really great. And, you know, I, I think every one of those touches on an immediate impact in your life and then your ability to be full participants in the economy again. Because one of the things that ends up happening in these recessions, of course, is that many people lose their jobs or their ability to be full participants. And then you get these downward cyclical things where people aren't able to then spend in their communities. They're not able to mm -hmm. uh, make investments in themselves, their children, their lives. And that is very dangerous. And it really is part of what exacerbated the long recovery we've been having from the last recession. We didn't do enough. And we just have to admit that. And I think that's exactly right. And so much of our policy actually, like outside of the monetary, I mean, yeah, outside of the monetary policy actually was putting the brakes on what should have been a recovery, right? Because instead of like doing what the government alone is able to do, which is pour money into the economy at that time, um, well, the government and large corporations, right, pour money into the economy they were pulling back in this austerity move. And so cutting public sector employment, um, not supporting local and, and state um, states to keep the level of services, the level of employment and expand in that moment of crisis. Yeah, one of the things about that trickle down frame is it yeah. also has this scarcity mentality and this austerity approach. And we know study over study, comparing countries to countries or states to states, those that pursued this austerity model or this trickle-down approach ended up recovering sl more slowly over a longer period of time and more people were harmed. And I think if there's any message for policymakers, it's don't repeat that mistake. We learned that. That's exactly that, that, right. Right, don't you think? Yeah. And what are you guys doing to help get this message out? I know there was a conference. I, I think there are, we know that there are policymakers who listen to this podcast uh, what 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 are you doing to get this message out, and what could a policymaker do to help get themselves educated to be in a better position uh, when the next recession comes? The Economic Policy Institute and Groundwork Collaborative had a um, convening around exactly this question called the next recession. And there's a video of it on the EPI website, which is epi.org. It's the Economic Policy Institute. Um, and so there's both sort of the economics of the next recession and sort of a great conversation about how we respond to it. So that's one piece. Um, and then I think, you know, the core is, right, two things move decisions in these crises, organized money and organized people. And so the Center for Popular Democracy um, has affiliates in many states and cities, and they are working all the time on exactly these issues that could be the core of the, um, the sort of break, break glass in case of emergency package for this recession. Other um, organizations across the country are working on these things. Um, Healthcare for America Now is working on these. So there's a ton of organizing that's going on that can be leveraged in order to have sort of the mobilization to move this kind of progressive, um, you know, activity 
in the economy in this crisis that builds toward a long-term sustainable economy. And then finally, I think, you know, it really is an engagement with grassroots organizations like our affiliates, with um, think tanks like EPI and others, with uh, policymakers now to think about what do we need to do to these policies that we've been working on in order to be ready for them to work in an acute crisis. Yeah, that's right. We know it's coming. I mean, this is yeah. the natural cycle of these things. And this is the time to prepare before people are stuck in a scarcity mentality and fear That's sets right. in. They need to get prepared. And I think the incredible work you are doing, and I really appreciate you uh, identifying those resources. And I think that this is the kind of thing that if we had done this well last time, we'd be in such a better position today. But hopefully we've learned our lesson and we can do the kind of organizing, thinking, and communicating that'll set us up better. Yeah, that's my hope too. And we're working toward that. That's great. Do you have anything else you want to add, Connie, that I might have missed? I don't think I do. I mean, I do think that the um, the work that's going on now is so crucial, but like actually coordinating those efforts in order to move toward this recession package um, feels very important. And so I do think that there's a bit of work ahead of us in order to be able to all get up to speed together on what it's going to take to win this next recovery. Hey, why do you do this work? Oh, wow. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. So immediately my kids, like I just need my kids to grow up in, into a place where they have a chance um, and where they and my cousins and my neighbors are all able to thrive and not be in fear. Um, and I think that this is, you know, I have so much hope for this country. <laughs> and I think that we together can do even greater things than we can do in this atomized um, economy that we're in right now. What a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much Likewise. for taking the time. As always, thanks for listening. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks, And peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. And one more, you should definitely follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests. And thanks to you for listening from our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jessen Farrell, Jasmine Weaver, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Stephen Paolini, and Annie Fadley. See you next week.